welcome to That's Anita Live, the talk show for emotional healing through sharing. I'm Anita, your host, and here with me is Maryland Delegate Angela Angel. She's launched a movement titled Beyond October to increase consciousness and involvement around domestic violence. Angela, I read your piece in the Washington Post, and the first thing I wondered was, how did you go from law graduate to battered wife to state delegate? Like, what made you go into politics? Well, I've actually always been in politics. I grew up in South Bend, Indiana, in a family that was very politically active. When I was at Hampton University, one of my, the dean of you my- You see that? Did you see how she slipped that into the HB, that, that HU? Listen, <laughs> listen. In DC, Hampton is always represented. I, I, well, you, the best HU is always thoroughly in there. Hampton, go Hampton University. Go Hampton University. <laughs> But um, while I was at Hampton University, my dean was Dr. Mamie Locke, and she is actually now in the Virginia Senate. But when I was there, she was running for the local county council. Okay. And so we worked on those campaigns. I then worked in the Virginia legislature, Virginia House. They're all, interestingly enough called also the, one of the only other legislatures that's the House of Delegates. And then I began working campaigns across the country. So I've always been politically wow, active and, and been a, what we call a political operative. Um, even as an attorney, when I was doing cases, you know, I would do different races, you know, big, most, I've worked almost every presidential race since 2000 wow. um, on either a state or um, either a state or a regional level. So it, it was just, I was working as an operative and when the opportunity came in 2014, because two seats opened up where I was currently living, even though I had been through a lot and I wasn't necessarily, you know, I think sometimes, especially we talk about as women and as black women, you know, we feel like we have to have everything so together, you know, whereas men sometimes, you know, they just wake up in the morning and shave and like, you know what, I think I should, I, I look good today, I'll run for office, Ooh. right? You know, like never, <laughs> not even served, you know, Nothing. not even on the usher board, Nothing. you know, but wake up and run for office. Um, but for me, it was really a moment where I kind of really sat down and asked myself, you know, this is gonna be hard. A lot of people didn't know my situation, hadn't known what I'd been through because I would, I was still working, you know, the entire time, even when we lost everything, when I lost my house, when I was in the shelter, I was in the shelter with a full-time job. It just didn't, you know, Prince George's County is one of the highest um, places to live, cost of living. Yes. And so I was in a shelter, going to work every day, coming back home, trying to figure out how do I reestablish myself after my husband had left and we were, you know, basically half our income was cut mm -hmm. and none of our expenses were. So... I hadn't fully, you know, wouldn't, was, wasn't necessarily, hadn't got my life completely together, but I also knew that this was kind of a critical moment. Okay. You know, when I look at representation, when I look at who's in the room, who's making the decisions that affect our lives, and even when I look at as someone who has been on every side of the system, in New York I was a prosecutor and I prosecuted child abuse and neglect. You know, here I was working in policy. I worked in the House of Delegates before I ever ran. I worked with the O'Malley administration, so I'd worked in the um, executive level of, of the state government. I was, I'd worked in county council, and, and so I, I understood policy from every aspect, but I also knew there weren't a lot of people that represented, you know, black women, that represented single black mothers, that represented women in general. There weren't enough women in the room. There weren't enough people who really understood how the programs and the decisions that they were making okay. affected people on the ground. 
you know, all of my children are in PGCPS schools. You know, when we're talking wow. about, you know, three of them have IEPs or 504s. You know, when we're talking about special education and someone comes in telling me what they do, I know what they do. You know, when we're talking about all these other things, you know, in, in different county services and what they do, as opposed to, as many of us know, what happens when you're sitting in that office. Yes. I knew there weren't enough people making the decisions and deciding what policies to push and what to fund that really had lived through this. And so for me, running was not necessarily about, you know, Angela Angel going to the House of Delegates. It wasn't about, you know, me becoming this elected official. It was about being that voice in the room. It was about representing, taking all of my life experiences and using them for God's glory to, as, as they say, to, to make a change, to bring help to the people. And so that was why I ran, even through all of my mess and even through, you know, trying to figure out how to balance my kids. And, you know, and I still wasn't really paid that well you know, <laughs> and trying to figure out all of that. But for me, that was where the passion that was where the passion came from then. Mm -hmm. And even now when I'm running for the Senate. People ask me all the time, well, why are you running for the Senate? You could just stay in the House. You know, when I run for the Senate, I give up my delegate seat. And, you know, and there's, you know, and there, it's a competitive race. If I don't win, then I'm out. And so some people say, well, why, wow. why risk it? You know, but for me, it's the same reason. The Senate is a much stronger policymaking body. Yes. Bills go over to the Senate and they come back completely different <laughs> than they left the House. <laughs> and so for me, once again, it's an opportunity to be that voice over there when someone's trying to add an amendment mm -hmm. or change a bill. Mm -hmm. You know, it's an opportunity to say, wait a minute, what are we doing and what does this mean for the people? That's why I ran for the House. And so that's why I made the decision to run for the Senate. Why beyond October? Because, <laughs> you know, and, and it's funny because during the month of October, I actually do not host any domestic violence events, which, you know, for some people, they, you know, they do the same thing. Yes. You said, they, they find it strange. They're like, wait a minute, aren't you know? And, and interestingly enough, as an as an aside, I actually didn't run and never really in my in my heart wanted to become some strong domestic violence or as we say dv advocate that really wasn't i actually my strong um policy work is in pediatric mental health and 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 that's what the committee i sit on is hgo but what happened was the bill that we were trying to get out to help expand protections just it was stuck and people didn't understand why it was so important so i had to begin sharing my story but, and explaining okay. Give us some background on the bill. Sure. Because the average viewer isn't, once you tell them what the bill was and mm -hmm. what it stood for, they aren't going to understand why it was stuck. Right. And then we'll get into that. Okay. So, so the bill we're talking about um, this year is actually House Bill 28. Um, but previously, when I first introduced it in 2015, it was House Bill 227. Mm -hmm. And then it was House Bill, I believe, 803. And then last year, it was House Bill 1396. So this is four years that it's, this is the fourth year that I've introduced the language. Um, but previously, it's been around since 2011, um, or I'm sorry, 2001. What the bill does is it basically expands the definition of abuse. And the reason that's important, because in the state of Maryland, you can only get a protective order for something that is defined as abuse. And right now, harassment and destruction of property is not defined as abuse. Mm -hmm. So no matter how egregious or criminal, there can be criminal level harassment where they're calling you, they're stalking you on social media, you know, they're calling your job, they're disrupting. It's one of the things yes. we call economic abuse, mm -hmm. which is actually much more prevalent. 
Right now, when you go into court, you can present all of that evidence and there's actually nothing a judge can do. And the same thing goes for malicious destruction of property. And that's where, you know, they're slashing your tires. You know, we have women that have testified they flooded the home and made them homeless. You know, you have folks that come in and have talked about how they killed their cats or their pets. One, one woman talks about how he, um, her abuser slit the cat's throat in front of her. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the actual senators testified that he had a issue in his county where that he was aware of where he lives in a more rural this is actually a white republican senator and he testified um, during one of our bill hearings that one of his constituents had called him in because her husband had came and killed all of the horses slit their throats so when they came oh. home the children and her came home to the horses and i believe some other maybe um mm -hmm. livestock mm -hmm. that were dead um, and, you know, everyone knew it was no doubt that the husband had yes. did it, but the problem was that was considered a destruction of property. And so there was actually nothing to be done. So, and he, so he very much, he said, I understand the need for this bill and, and, you know, and she couldn't even get a restraining order to bar him from coming back, back to, to the, the property. House. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what this bill does is add destruction of property and harassment to the definitions of the abuse for those instances, you can present them before a judge and you'll now be able to get protection. And, and so that's the difference. Why was it stuck? You know, it's been stuck. There is a, a because listening to it, it seems very right. It seems very common. You wouldn't believe, you know, in my naivete, I was like, oh, I'm just going to come in here and pass this bill. <laughs> like, I was like, like, you know, I, I remember in my particular instance when I when the judge, you know, when I had presented and I, I, I was being harassed, my ex-husband was doing some pretty, you know, calling me, calling my job, sending me text messages. And because I'm an attorney, you know, I brought my evidence like I bring receipts, yes. as the kids say uh -huh, today. Right. Uh -huh. I had all of my things. And what the judge basically said to me, which always stuck in my head, he said, the law needs to change. So, so when I got to Annapolis, even though this wasn't my platform, this wasn't really what I was, you know, to, in my head, what I was sent there to do. Yeah. Um, I said, well, okay, I'm gonna change this law. Like, you know, and I went in, I met with the vice chair and I remember um, her telling me, she said, well, I've been trying to do this for a while. It's very difficult. I don't think you'll be able to pass this bill. And I remember thinking, well, why, you know, you know young ish. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and, and I was like, well, I don't, that doesn't make any sense. It, it, it's a common sense change. Um, basically, there's a couple of things. Any type of domestic violence bill is usually met with what is called the hysterical woman doctrine. And what that is, is where you will have a time, a lot of times, and not just men, but you even have some women lawmakers that say, well, if we expand these protections, then women will just come into court for anything. You know, and, and, and that's, you know, and that's, that's what they say. You know, it's what we, when we talk about rape and all these other things, and um, that's what you'll often hear. Well, women will just come in and make false claims. So that's one of the things they say, well, harassment is so broad. And, you know, I've even heard, you know, the chairman, if you read some, listen to some of the bill hearings, you know, one of the chairman will say, well, I harass my wife all the time. I call her, I need to know what's for dinner. I need to, and, and you know, not in making this disconnect or kind of, yes. you know, not understanding, we're not talking about, you know, just commonplace, you're making phone calls. We're talking about, you know, 1 a.m., 2 a.m., disrupting someone's sleep, mm -hmm. interfering with their job, you know, with destruction of property. We're talking about, you know, where you might be trying to force them to return home by ruining, you know, their ability to mm -hmm. get to work mm -hmm. or even, you know, wherever they're, they're going to stay. Because if your friend comes to stay with you, but now their ex-husband is calling constantly or coming by the house yes. and they can't tell them to go, um, there are people who will be like, you know what, 
I, I can't, I, I love you, I wanna help you, but I can't deal mm -hmm. with this. And then women have to return home or they have to figure out different, different you know, ways to options. get a, different options. So the reason that this has not passed is often because it's minimized. And, and also there are just some of the members, you know, and not even members of the committee, but the chairman who have just had some issues with the bill. And one of the things that I presented this year, as I said, give me some language. You know, yes. one of the things that, you know, I'm, in a, um, I'm an alternative dispute resolution, you know, counselor. That's one of my certifications from law school. Okay. You know, I know how to negotiate. I'm like, let's figure out yes. what language works. You don't like this. You know, initially they said they didn't like the criminal definition of harassment because it's too broad. So the language that I then changed and introduced is basically it lists out three different um, elements of harassment and one of them has to be that a reasonable person would be alarmed or suffer severe emotional distress mm -hmm. based on the actions being testified to. So the point of that is to relieve kind of this thought that, you know, someone's just going to come in with frivolous claims. You know, it establishes a standard that a judge has to do. You know, so we thought maybe that language will work. Mm -hmm. And what I'm finding, I think, is there hasn't been enough of a push for them to, to really force the, the folks on the committee and the chairman to really sit down and say, okay, let's figure out language that works. And the, the interesting thing about Annapolis and state government is we have 90 days. You know, I think right now we are in day, Friday was the 60th day, okay. we have 60 days left. So by the time we go back on Monday, we'll be at about 50, 56, um, if we count, because we count the weekends. Oh, okay. So so when we get back, I'm sorry, not 56. Um, well, yeah, no, 50, 57, around that time. Mm -hmm. So when when the when the 90 days are up, you're out of time. You have to start all over again next year. And so what happens is this often typically gets placed at the low end of priorities, mm -hmm. and we just never get around to it. Or they just he moves it unfavorable because they they don't make the connection between how the civil affects the criminal. Exactly. And that if you take care of it at the civil level, you could cut down a whole lot of the criminal offenses. Exactly. They also don't make the connection of how these low level or these lower offenses escalate and, and how, you know, that's how it gets to be more physical or how it gets to be where women are. We have the highest rate of fatalities yes. in Prince George's County. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we had been able to get some of these protective orders when some of this behavior was first happening, it could have helped stop those. And, and there's a disconnect with that as well. And, and so that's part of what we're pushing this year. And we're needing the public to help us to contact you know, their elected representatives and members of the committee to say, we need you to work on this language figure out a compromise, and move the bill. We'll be right back with more from Delegate Angela Angel. What if I told you that you could stop the negative tape from playing inside your head? What if, with seven simple steps, you could leave the pain of the past behind and live every day as your true, authentic self? It is possible, and you can do it. The ebook, Seven Simple Steps to Beat Emotional Baggage How to Become Whole, Healed, Healthy, and Happy, shares how to resolve emotional baggage. And feel free to live true to your own personality, spirit, and character. Transform negative thinking into positive thinking and become equipped to boldly face your past and resolve emotional pain. 
Get your free copy at thatanitalive.com slash ebook. And we're back with Delegate Angela Angel, and we're, at this point, going to get a little bit more into your personal story, because you have a personal DV story. Now, many women, because of church or family code, the way we're raised, don't believe in divorce. Were you one of those women? Um, I'm still one of those women, so yes, I, I don't believe in divorce. Um, and it's interesting being divorced because a lot of my friends come to me about it. About, and I'm like, actually, <laughs> I don't, I'm not going to advise you to leave your That's husband. That's the answer I was expecting. You're right. They're always, hey, oh, okay. <laughs> they, they usually be like, and I'm like, right, oh. right. I, so no, I, I, don't, I don't believe in divorce. Um, and, you know, in, in large parts, I'm a, um, my, my faith is a large part of who I am. Okay. And so... Um, I didn't, I never wanted to be divorced. I never planned to be divorced. And I still, you know, for me, it's something that I pray about and I've gotten past in my own, you know, the shame or the guilt that I feel about mm -hmm. it. But, um, so I, I don't believe in divorce. You know, I, I would say that I am, which is, I am divorced. Right, so how do you deal with the internal contradiction? So interestingly enough, when my, um, we had had quite a few episodes of violence and it had gotten, you know, pretty bad. And at one point, um, when we went into the shelter, you know, and my husband, he just left, you know, and we were, you know, there was one particular episode where, you know, we were in a car and it, and it was pretty bad. And, um, and he left and we kind of very quickly, you know, lost everything. And it was at that point that I still had not filed and I was still working through in my head, but I'm, as I said, I'm a woman of faith. Mm -hmm. And I remember praying and asking God, you know, really about where I should go and what I should do. And there's actually um, a point in scripture that talks about when a believer is married to an unbeliever. And the scripture actually states, and if that unbeliever leaves, you do not have to go after them. There is no, no requirement to go after them, nor do you have to accept them back. Mm -hmm. And honestly, when my spirit left, led me to that point in scripture, and I prayed over that and asked, you know, is this where, what, what, what the spirit is showing me in that, it gave me a sense of peace about being divorced, about being separate, because my husband was not, be, he was behaving as an unbeliever. And therefore, as a believer, I'm, I'm not required to remain yoked. But when you got married, mm -hmm. you were in love, felt that you were loved. Yes. How did you get to that point? How, to, how did I get to? To the altar. Because was it that you were young? So you missed being unequally yoked and you didn't see the red flags or? I think we don't have enough, we don't have enough conversations. I will tell you, most of my friends that I know that are very solidly, happily married, that made really, they had, like they were taught how to pick a mate, how to be married, how to, you know, they had deep conversations okay. with their parents and with the people in their community about this is what marriage is. And I think, we don't, uh, oftentimes, we don't have those. And so it's just like with anything else. If you don't have a foundation, you don't understand how to build, right? Right. You don't know how to build this house. You don't know how to make this choice. And, and so I think, you know, and that's how you find out, yes, you know, but you're in love and this is great. And, and, and it's, you know, and it's wonderful. And at the time, you know, when we got married, my husband was in the Navy. And so there's this interesting, and, and, and a lot of military families will tell you this, when there's this kind of, they come home and they go away and they come home, there's always this kind of euphoria, either you're glad 
glad they're back or you're mm -hmm. anticipating they're leaving. And so some of the things that were that would have been red flags didn't really uh, manifest yeah. until much later and didn't really manifest until, you know, for instance, he was out and he was home constantly and, you know, you begin to realize, wait, you know, this isn't necessarily just because you're leaving or because, you know, like this is a state of yeah. that you that you occupy on yeah. a regular basis. The, the wall of the representative is coming down. I'm getting to see the real you. Exactly. And and also seeing how you manage things. You know, when I talk about relationships even with with my, you know, children and and with my my girl my oldest daughter, you know, understanding well, you have to observe how does how does this person handle rejection? How do they handle being upset? Mm. You know, how do they manage their emotions? Um, you know, we have to teach that how, how does the person you're interacting and how do you manage your emotions, you know, and, and unless you build those, you know, that understanding and that foundation, you can make these types of mistakes. And, um, now, and with the episodes between you and your husband, some of the violent episodes, his family blamed you. How did they blame you? Well, there was a particular episode where, um, when I was actually, in his hometown and um, he was arrested because I called the police. Okay. And, and during that time, actually, they, the way that it happened, they had my children um, because we were, we had been, we were separated um, from where the kids were when the actual incident happened. And they actually kept my kids from me, you know, um, I was calling at one point I didn't have anything because it was it was kind of unexpected and you know he met me we I was out somewhere and it was just like well let's go here and mm -hmm. you know at the time you're not thinking about it mm -hmm. you know jump in the car I don't have my purse I don't necessarily have I might I think I have my cell phone you know but I didn't, I didn't think about that right, because you feel as if you're with someone that you know love and trust exactly mm -hmm. um, and so you know they had they had all of my stuff and they wouldn't tell me where the kids were they wouldn't tell me you know they wouldn't bring them to me um, it was, you know, about a day and a half or so of me calling. Later on, I actually found out that th from through my daughters that they had actually been trying to take them to court to get custody or to get, you know, some type of uh, legal documentation that would have given them custody of my children. Mm -hmm. Um, which is ironic because, you know, I always, litigation never scares me. <laughs> like, like you want to bring something to court with me. I'm always, I'm like, don't bring, you know, don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Mm. Like I'm, but you know, so they, and I of course knew that that could not happen, you know, but they were, and so part of that was them running around trying to get actual custody of my yeah. children behind my back. Um, and then, you know, avoiding my calls and, and when I, and, and, but then it was also when we finally did see each other and talk, it was, it was just never spoken of. Um, you know, it was not acknowledged. It was, you know, just. So we're just gonna pick up from this point and move right. forward like nothing ever happened. Exactly. Yeah. What clicked for you that made it clear, made the decision final that this is it and you were going to leave? Um, or you weren't going to take him back? I think part of it was, was recognizing the, the trauma that was happening to my children. Um, recognizing, you know, when one incident happened and, you know, my daughter was caught in the crossfire. Um, at one point in time, there was a, a point where um, my sons had seen something. And I remember um, one of my sons, like, calling out, 
like mommy, dad, mm -hmm. and you know, and seeing the the look in in his eyes, and and realizing this this was beginning to register, and that this wasn't about me. Um, I had done, I had prosecuted child abuse and neglect, and that in domestic violence that takes place in front of children was one of the causes in New York, and it's actually um, a law that I'm trying to pass here that DV in front of children um, can be a subject of, it can be a form of neglect. Um, and, and so I knew very much the consequences that children develop seeing that, you know, and, and I didn't, um, I didn't, I didn't, I never expected to raise my children in this environment. And, and for me, you know, your legacy, your children, what you leave them with is so critical. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I couldn't live with them thinking this is what love is, this is what relationships are. Yeah. Um, and so, how did you rebuild? You know, <laughs> prayer, God, people, <laughs> community. Um, you know, part of it is, and that's one of the things, you know, I luckily was someone that was fairly highly educated. Um, and, you know, truth be told, I, like I said, I worked at the county. Um, you know, I knew our social service systems. I didn't just know our social service systems. I knew because having worked in New York, New Jersey, okay. you know, having done some work in Ohio and in um, Indiana, I knew how these things worked. So I knew how to apply for a grant, how to get this, how to, you know, and luckily I was at a job that for instance, if I needed to take off and go sit in somebody's office, which you oftentimes have to do, you know, I could do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I know a lot of people don't have those luxuries, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, I was working. So even though we lost everything and I had to re-figure out how to, you know, get my money back together, mm -hmm. I did have a steady income coming in. And so when I was in the shelter, I was able to save that up and you know able to put money away for a um a home you know a down payment on on rent mm -hmm. and you know and able to apply for grants to help supplement that um but at the same time there was also just a lot of god's favor and and that's you know for me that was how we rebuilt but you know one of the reasons why i fight the way i do is i know a lot of people don't have access to those resources a lot of people don't even have that understanding that i had to know how to navigate you know there are times I would go into social services and I'll admit someone would just tell me something objectively wrong, right? Like it was just wrong. Yeah. Uh -huh. And and I would be like, that's not correct. I need to speak to supervisor. And even sometimes the supervisor <laughs> wouldn't know. And I would be like, you need to go pull this and pull that. And, you know, and I would tell them. And then, you know, and most of the times when I was there, I did not let people know, you know, where I worked and who I was because one, I was very private about what I was going through, but also I didn't want there to be an appearance of preference. Okay. But, um, you know, because I remember at one point in time, someone kind of figured out who I was and they were like, why didn't you just, and I was like, because that wasn't one, because your system should work properly, right? Right. Like, right. like right. it shouldn't be that I have to call. But that's an excellent way to know what your constituents have to go through should they be in that situation. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons, you know, when I advocate for them, I do it the way, you know, so zealously mm -hmm. because I know what they're going through. If you are being emotionally, mentally, or even physically abused, or if it happened to you some time ago in your past. Abuse can manifest in fear, low self-esteem. It can even manifest in suicidal thoughts. Reach out for help. One thing you can do is call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Get help, make the decision to work toward achieving a better life. Help is here for you because I know sometimes we don't want to be fixed, we just want to be heard. 
The National Domestic Violence Hotline is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. And make the commitment to start your emotional healing journey. If you'd like to reach out to Delegate Angela, reach out to www.advocateangel.com. One more time www.advocateangel.com and on all social media, it's MD, like Marilyn, Advocate Angel, MD Advocate Angel. I'm Anita, your host. Be sure to check out thatanitalive.com for where and when to see our next episode.